Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined with my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, Don. J.J., how are you? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing terrific. Listen, we've got an incredible interview today with Stephen Mansfield. It yes. actually goes a little bit long. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, we just got into the groove on this one, yeah. and it's 10 signs that you're going to crash as a leader, yeah. and you're going to take a lot of people down with you. And these signs are not things you would think about, but they're yeah. incredibly practical. You listen to them, you go... Yeah, it's exactly what happens. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you anymore, but I will tell you this. One of them is you're isolated. You don't have yeah. good friends. Yeah. And that, I mean, I, it's kind of a sentimental moment. You're one of the people that I kept thinking about as I talked to Stephen. Because he talked about how leaders will often surround themselves with people who won't tell them the truth. Uh-huh. And one of the things that you and I have developed, yes. and um, it's such a gift to me in all honesty, Betsy does this, my wife does this, Tim does this on staff, you'll pull me aside and say, hey, there's something in your blind spot here. Yeah, you're not. Or hey, you're uh, not. you actually kind of hurt that person's feelings just like three minutes ago. You got to run back. And you'll even like whisper it. Hey, you need to go talk to so-and-so. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> crap. And it was just fantastic to know. Sometimes you're listening to one of these interviews and you're just like, oh, I'm really screwed up. I need to manage my time better or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. nice to go, hey, this is pretty good. Uh, who do you go to? I mean, I know you and I have an honest relationship, but you, yeah. you have rich relationships. Yeah. Who do you go to when you- I have, when- I have a lot of good friends who call me on my crap a lot. Yeah. That, I think it's it's just something that I, I think tried to strength. set up. You know, you don't want people who are constantly criticizing you no. and pulling out every one most things. people do yeah, it. Yeah. It's really like, you can do it. Yeah, so my friend Kristen, who we actually lived in an intentional community, we just became super tight, and then we ended up working together later. And more than anybody else in my life, when I am off track, she will just pull me aside and just call me on anything. I think it's great to have those people. Yeah. I think we have to. You have to. I think for longevity, if you want to survive, you have to have people around you who will call you on your stuff, both in great ways. They will call out the greatness in you, and they yeah. will call out the times that you are less than yourself. There's an counterintuitive element to this, because you don't think you want these people around, yeah. but they actually are making you stronger. Yep. Well, Stephen is an expert at this. He's got a book called 10 Signs of a Leadership Crash, and, and he calls them signs, I'd call them symptoms, Yeah. and symptoms that it's about to happen. And he's the guy who goes in when some billion-dollar CEO does something really stupid and is costing people their jobs. Steven's the guy they often call, and he doesn't go in to bury the bodies. He goes in to actually bring a lot of healing. And so listen to this interview, and I want to tell you, listen to it with your spouse. Listen to it with your company. Listen to it with your friends. Listen to it with your small group. Listen to this interview. And we're actually going to tell you at the end where you can get a written form of these 10 signs so you can actually review them. But you really want to process this stuff because – you know, there, there was one or two things that he talked about that I saw little pieces of in my life. Yeah. And I, I've known about this for a while. Steven sent me this over a year ago. It was so nice to self-correct. And if I wouldn't have listened to this interview or wouldn't have read that document before doing the interview, I probably would have kept going. Yeah. And I don't think I would have gotten to the point where I'd actually crash, but I probably would have gotten into some stuff I didn't need to get into. Yeah. So uh, I'm so grateful. We're not going to banter any longer. We're just going to get right into the interview because it is a bit lengthy. Here's my interview with Stephen Mansfield. Steven, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Man, it's good to be with you. I mean, you're kind of known as the guy who helps people communicate and helps leaders communicate and gets things going. You've written a ton of books. 
one of my friends said that The Search for God in Guinness is the greatest business book that he has ever read. And so if you're out there looking for a business book, that's a great one. But we want to talk about something that's a passion of yours that you do, not on the side, because you're ending up doing a lot more and more of it. You're helping leaders to not crash and burn, or you sometimes go in after they've crashed and burned, and you don't spin it. You just try to that's right. help them figure out how to get back on track yep. and save a community from a death spiral after yeah. their leader goes yeah. down. Is that, was that fair to say? It's very fair. You know, for a lot of years, most people know me as an author and speaker, but for a lot of years, I've had a consulting firm and we specialized in cleaning up after the crash. Some of the biggest ones in the papers, biggest ones in the news we were involved in. You know, the CEO, the politician, the general, whoever, the famous preacher would have a moral failing. They were stealing money. They were sleeping with the secretary, whatever, and it blew up an organization. We would right. fix it. Well, what happened was over time, I began to realize there are about well, eight to 10 common signs if people just knew what to look for that could help prevent this. Because, uh, you know, after we did 20 or 30 of these, I realized that, you know, there are basically about eight to 10. And what's interesting to me, Tim and I were talking about this. Tim's our producer. We were talking about this last night when we were looking at your document here. And and we're going to get into this. They're not things that we would have thought of. Like I said to Tim, I said, uh, you know, they're surrounded by a bunch of yes men and all that stuff is true. But being out of season and creating a third place. Yeah. I never would have thought of that. Then when I read that, I thought, oh my goodness, that's exactly what happens. And nobody sees that. And well, that's and that's the frustrating thing is that most of the factors that prevent these crashes are soft issues. They're not, you know, the accountant should have done this a certain way or the lawyer should have done a thing in a certain a certain way. That may play into some of these, but for the most part, there are ten soft factors that would prevent most of these major crashes, mm-hmm. and that makes it both more exciting and more frustrating all at the same time right. because it's it's easily doable, but very few people are. I want to go through it. For a couple reasons. One is I want to prevent the people listening from crashing and burning. The people who listen to the show tend to be high-impact folks. They're business leaders. And like it or not, people are dependent on you. Leadership is different. You don't get to do what you want. There's a different dynamic for leaders that we've got to own. Yes, yes. It does no good. What happens when you don't? Well, I can tell you that the stat is that there are billions of dollars lost to corporate America every year through these kinds of crashes. Yeah. Think about, uh, and I won't name any names, but think about a company that maybe you know where the CEO did something. He had an affair. He misspent the money. He violated, uh, you know, maybe a congressman violates the franking privileges. Uh, but staying in the CEO world for the for a moment hundreds of millions of dollars are lost to the brand, to the company, devastation. Because of a person. One person, let's just say he takes a million dollars out of the account and he sleeps with the secretary. But that damages the brand hundreds of millions of dollars worth. And that's not including- That translates into cost jobs. Yes, massive, massive. Lawsuits, you can't believe how the lawsuits fly in these situations. And here's here's the issue. It can all be prevented. It can all be prevented. Yeah. Well, like I said, these aren't the common things you would think about. And I think every single one of them, and there are 10, and we're going to have to fly through them. We're going to give you a way to read about them later, but we're going to have to fly through them. The first is what? Now, this is a sign, a symptom that you're heading towards somewhere you ought not go. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. What's the first? The first one, and it's a little bit mystical, so it bothers business people, is being out of season. We all know what it's like uh, to be out of season. We made commitments. We said we'd stay only 
for a certain period of time. We told our spouses that we would leave after so many years. We don't feel the mojo. We don't feel like we're in place. We were good in the first 18 months. We're diminishing in the second 18 months. The third 18 months is going to just kill us. We know we're out of season. We know our time. Does that mean, like, to translate that, like, you're an entrepreneur, you got something started, it's running, now you're having to manage it, and you're not a manager. You're not using your gifts. So you're out of your your element. Exactly. Call it what you will. All pistons aren't firing. Uh, The gift isn't there. The grace isn't there. If you want to speak in spiritual terms or whatever you want to call it, you know that you're not where you're supposed to be. We've all had it happen. We're working along in a job, and suddenly it ain't right no more. Everybody knows it. Sometimes it's got concretes to it. You committed to 18 months for the wife, and then you guys would retire, or you'd come back from the Indonesian office or whatever it was. And when you're out of season, you know it. And that's when, this is the key, that's when you're vulnerable and off balance. When you're out of season, you're vulnerable and off balance. And you're looking for some way to numb yourself. You're looking for some sense of meaning. What are you looking for when you're out of season? You're trying to fix it. Uh, You're out of season with your marriage. Your wife's ticked off, so the secretary is looking good. You're out of season. You're not making, the company's not making the money it should, so you falsify the reports. You fake it with government agencies, and so you're going to go to jail. I mean, this is, this stuff has actually happened. And what I'm saying is that every single, we call them postmortems, uh, every single postmortem we do on a major leadership crash, the lead guy, the person who perpetrated said, I was out of season and I didn't know how to make it right. How do you get back in season? What do you do? I mean, if somebody says, that's me, they're listening. They say, that's me. What do they need to do? You got to stop. You got to stop, stop doing, doing whatever you're doing. Stop doing what you're out of season because you're not going to be doing it well. You're going to start pushing. You're going to start stressing. You're going to start medicating. You're going to try to fix it. You're going to try to fix it at an ego level. You're going to try to fix it at a business and finance level. And that's what gets people in trouble. So stop. Admit it. Step out. Ask for a sabbatical. Do whatever you have to do to stop the daily pushing on something that's out of season. Get back to what it is that defines the fact that you're out of season. Talk to your spouse. Talk to you, the people who advise you, your band of brothers, your band of sisters, whoever they are, go back and say, look, I, I realize I'm, I'm at 19 months when I said 15 months was the end. Let's talk about if this needs to end right. and then bring it to a close. But the first thing is just acknowledging the fact I'm out of season, and I'm off this, balance, and, and I'm And it's not a permanent thing. No, no, yeah, it, it, it can be gonna, fixed. Here's the key. If you're out of season in one situation, that means you can be in season in another situation. Right. You're always There's always a sweet spot of a season yeah, to be in. Find your you just got to stop pushing the one you're in that ain't working. Yeah. Okay. Next, choosing isolation. Yeah. Everybody who is in trouble isolates themselves. Why do we do that? Because we feel guilty. We know that people know us and don't want, we don't want them to see us. We've got our, you know, the white powder or the Snickers shoved in the glove box at the car, whatever it is. But we start it's to actually isolate. watch McCall. It's what you call it. Okay. The thing, <laughs> the thing, whatever the big hairy thing is. And we all have those things. Uh, but some people have serious versions of them. And so they hyper isolate. You know, you start, if you start an affair, what do you start doing? You start pulling away from those who know you best right. because they're going to figure it out. They're going to see it in your eyes. They're going to see it in your manner with your spouse or whatever. So isolation is one of the keys. Everybody, every leader who isolates themselves, and I'm not talking about solitude now. I'm not talking about introverts. It's not introvert time. No, yeah. no. I'm talking about you isolate yourself in a way that your friends are sitting around going, you're where's- cutting yourself off from exactly. feedback. Exactly. Where's Joe, man? We haven't seen him in a long time. Anybody spoken to Joe? Anybody challenged Joe? Anybody gone for a run with Joe and asked him what's up? You know, that kind of thing. No, yeah. last time I saw Joe was three months ago and he was having a fight with his wife. Wait a minute. That's isolation. You pulled back. And that is always dangerous. Again, I'm not talking about solitude, which as an introvert I believe in. I'm talking about unhealthy, unclean, damaging, destructive isolation that cuts you off from the healthy response systems that you need in your life. How much of the turn this around is a confession? 
is just getting along with a buddy and said, hey, can I tell you something? Absolutely. I'm up to stuff it begins, find, find your best friend. And this is part of the problem. Most people who crash have, have distanced themselves from their friends. Find your best friend, sit them down, and say, I've screwed up. You know, I've known some guys who've crashed and burned, some really great guys. They were great before they crashed and burned. They were great after they crashed and burned, but they did crash and burn. The three that I'm thinking about, there was this odd moment before they did that where one of their, usually sort of an assistant, somebody who's on the payroll, said, actually, you know, they don't have any close friends. I can't tell you. And how I much just thought I heard that, that was so yeah. odd. They yeah. were powerful, powerful people. Yeah. I actually think when I teach this more positively, I think that one of the arts of leadership is cultivating close friendships. And I'm mm. not sure a person's a great leader unless they have close friendships. But leaders who get in trouble, leaders who are damaging, uh, leaders who are bombastic, they normally are competitive, hard edged, and keep people at a distance. And it, of course, harms them. Is there a type of personality, some of these high impact, accomplishing personalities? What I noticed about those three folks, they just had trouble being in relationships with people who weren't ultimately, for lack of a better word, submissive to them. Yes. They needed people to just say yes. It was easier that way. They're trying to get stuff done. No, what you've got to have if you're going to be an effective leader and have a good long career is you've got to have people who love you but aren't afraid of you. When I used to pastor, I had folks outside of my church, what I called cigar-chomping pagans. Of course, that doesn't make you a pagan. But I had <laughs> cigar-chomping pagans outside of my church, and they didn't care. They loved me, but they weren't afraid of me. They'd tell me whatever I needed to hear. Yeah. You've got to have other. You've got to have people who have a free pass to slam into you if they need to. And you can't just have sycophants. You can't just have employees. You can't just have family members. You can't have just people who you know hyper-respect you. You've got to have people who can go, you're an idiot. Let me tell you what you're doing wrong. Right, right. But at the same time, the next words out of their mouths are, let's go eat. You gotta right, have those yeah, kind of guys yeah, who are not. They're not trying to bring you down. They're not just. They're not. They're not using that up, as an opportunity to abuse you. you. They're looking at you and going, "Look, I know you. I ain't afraid of you. You're a fool." Do you see that as the opposite of isolation? Yes, is, is just these close friendships. Yes, you can isolate yourself uncleanly, or you can have people around you uh, who know you. And here, here's one of the keys too, by the way, I'm, I don't want to go too far with this, but you know, in a lot of male uh, world, uh, we have things like accountability groups or study groups. And that means I drive across town once a month. I tell a bunch of guys what's wrong with me so they can maybe give me advice. I need people in my life who are close enough to see what I'm doing day right. in and day out. They hear the uh, angry cell phone call with my wife. They see not two glasses of wine, but four at, at a meal. They hear my language dropping or whatever it is for Stephen Mansfield that is the sign that things are in decline. Mm -hmm. But they got to be walking close enough to see it on their own because if they wait for me to figure it out and tell them then we're in trouble oh. and that is the opposite of isolation and it's the only healthy way you're going to make it you've got to have the response system of good i think it makes does. you strong when you have somebody pointing out what's in your blind side they're saving you from making stupid mistakes. But the traditional CEO, leader, strong leader image is you don't have anybody like that in your life. Everybody's got to be five or six steps down, and that just leaves you vulnerable. Yeah. Okay, three, defining episodes of bitterness. Yeah, yeah. We all have episodes of bitterness, wounding that leads to bitterness in our lives. We can all look back, the coach, the parent, the girlfriend, the friends, the episode with the teacher, whatever. We all have that. The question is whether we surrender our souls to it. The question is whether it's cycling through us uh, throughout our lives. When Richard Nixon was going through Watergate, he would sometimes fall to the floor, beat on the floor, and talk about what, quote, they did to me. Henry Kissinger figured out before too long, he wasn't talking about the Democrats. He was talking about what kids did to him back when he was a little boy, wow. when his family were Quakers, and uh, they were being picked on for being Quakers and his father not being wealthy. So here he was in the right? Oval Office, but he was ticked off and bitter and angry and inflamed by bitterness by something that had happened 50 years before. And David Gergen, who wrote a great book on leadership, said that we all have episodes of bitterness, but Richard Nixon surrendered his soul 
to his bitterness. And that's the issue. It was his driving force. Yes. Every post-mortem I've done on a leadership crash, the leader was somehow taking sanctions, somehow giving himself permission, somehow off balance because he was cycling, he or she was cycling back through old episodes of bitterness. You'd have a 70-year-old man who's at the top of his game, CEO of a company, but somehow we'd enter a season where he's going back and processing what the coach did, what his dad did, what his mother did, what they did when he was at the military academy. And somehow he had begun to drink or have affairs or become bitter or become arrogant or distance himself or do something destructive because bitterness was cycling in his soul. I'm just telling you, it's almost always part of it because we all have enough, even like you got these young tech guys in the room right now helping us record this, and they're half my age, but they've got enough bitterness if they want to, to let that defile them Mm -hmm. for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. So we've got to be able to get over those episodes. We've got to realize when they try to cycle again in our hearts. You know, we study story here, and that's how we help people communicate. And one of the true things about every villain, you know, Christopher Booker talks about this in his treatise on how to tell great stories. He goes into what makes a good villain, and one of the things that makes a good villain in literature because I think it's true in life, is they have a victim aspect. There's something that happened to them that they are raging against the world, but they haven't resolved that something. The hero also has a victim aspect, but they resolved it. Yes. And they're moving forward to make the world better, and the villain is moving forward trying to destroy the world because getting the world back for what it did to them. Well, and I'm grateful for literature that puts those in dichotomy, you know, the villain versus the hero. On the other hand, most of us live somewhere in between. And so we're not not full-on villains. We're just tainted wannabe heroes. And so the jury's still out. Are we going to give in to our lesser selves, the lesser angels of our nature to pervert Lincoln? Or are we going to uh, give in, uh, are we going to rise above those things? And I'm telling you, for most leaders, this is the defining issue almost more than anything else on this list. Really? That holding on to bitterness? Yes. Think about your life. Is it because it's that much of a motivator? It's huge. You have a wonderful life, but you can go back, if you choose, right this second on the air, right. you can go back to a defining issue of bitterness. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what it is, so I'm, I'm not trying to play with your life. But you can go back and by the end of the day, be enough bittered, angered, surly, harsh, unsettled, off your game, imbalanced, that anything's possible tonight. Yeah. That's what leads to crashes. Now, stretch that out over six months or a year, and you've got a real disaster. We all have some excuse that we can use, and we all have some, well, the world owes me, mm-hmm. you know, thing that may or may not be true. But I've noticed that great leaders, if you cut off their right leg, they talk about how great they are now at swimming in circles. Yes. <laughs> they they yes. don't talk about, they're not mad about it. They're just like, you wouldn't believe the benefit of this horrible thing that's you know, happened to me. You know and they just move ahead. Right. They like just that's in right. traffic, they're just like the motorcyclist that's weaving through Absolutely. this traffic. They just move on. And what we're really talking about, even though it sounds like a, a churchy concept to some people, is gratitude. We're really talking yeah. about gratitude. Yeah. You know, yeah, I lost a leg, but hey, look what I can do now. Yeah, I lost a child. Yeah, this, yeah, that. And we're not making light of it, but look what can happen now from this. Uh, we're, we're living at a time when it's easy to become embittered. In fact, I'll tell you, one of the statistics on the millennials is that they become embittered secondhand. They haven't experienced it. It's a knee-jerk it. reaction. Exactly. They haven't experienced it personally. They've just read about somebody else having a bad time, <laughs> and they've absorbed it. Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to make light of that generation. I'm saying even that can become the defining thing that makes yeah. you that knocks you off your game. So maintaining gratitude and being careful about defining episodes of bitterness is absolutely critical. I love this, and I think it is a message for our time because for the first time in the history of the country, 
we are moving from a hero identity to a victim identity, and nothing good happens in a victim identity. No. Nothing no. good. There's no benefit no. to it. Mm-mm. Number four, evading confrontation. I got here today by driving my car, which is powered by a series of small explosions. You and I probably will fly by the end of the month. That plane is powered by a series of small explosions. Small explosions are the smaller confrontations we need to have to keep us on track. It's the little correction your wife gives you today. It's the correction you give to your staff. It's the thing you say to your children. It's the way that you get things back in lines. If we don't have small, healthy confrontations and explosions, we're going to have the great, big, huge ones that blow up our lives. So evading confrontation is one of the things that causes tremendous destruction. I love the football program at the University of Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. and it's been destroyed by the sexual abuse. And the primary perpetrator, Sandusky, said in court, no one ever confronted me about child abuse. Isn't that amazing? I can't believe it. You say that right here in your paper. Yeah, yeah. You talk about that at the very beginning. No one ever confronted me. Now, he may have been lying, but all the testimony outside of that seems to confirm it. And so the question is, why not? We all need to have people who are able to confront us. I beg my staff, I beg my team, I beg my wife, who is a wonderful, loving woman, but tough. Uh, I beg them, tell me what I need to hear. Don't let me just go off the rails or don't just back away from me. So loving, consistent confrontation has got to happen. I don't want it to be a once a year memory. My staff says, oh, I remember that time we confronted Stephen. I want it to be every week. Hey, that blog doesn't make any sense. Hey, you're being silly. You were a little harsh the other day in that meeting. What's going on? I want regular confrontations so that we're fine tuning what's going on rather than the big explosions. How do you invite those? How does somebody who has that sort of submit to me or we don't have a relationship personality, move toward inviting confrontation in their life. Shut up. Ask people what you need to know. If something goes wrong they should have confronted you about, go to them and say, man, what? hey, don't ever let me step into that again, man. Tell me what's going on. Right. Constantly. You've got to humble up. You've got to invite it. There's no tension between being in charge and asking for input. I mean, in fact, that I actually put that in people's job descriptions. Your job is to give me input at a professional and personal level that I need to be the best I can be. That's a line in almost everybody's job description. So that's got to happen. It seems like there's a consistent theme here amongst some of these ideas, at least the four we've talked about so far, that you've got to be able to take some losses in order to win the war, and that's counterintuitive. You know, I was talking to a buddy the other day, and he's in a tough place with his wife, done some things he shouldn't have done, and he's getting beat up over it. Yeah. And he's trying to win each of those battles, and I just said, if you want to win the war, lose every battle from here on out. Yeah. Just lose, yeah. The, lose yeah. walk in and lose it, and that's counterintuitive for a lot of people. It is, and, and some of the professions uh, that are the most vulnerable to the great big crashes are the ones that have built into them some distance from the next tier of people in their lives, so there aren't these confrontations. Think about the way the average pastor functions. Think about the way the average politician functions. Think about the way a general functions. I work in D.C. a lot, live there half the year, talk to a lot of generals. They say, well, who am I supposed to get? The colonel's not going to say anything. His job depends on it. He's got to cultivate that with his peers, cultivate that kind of confrontation and input from his peers. But it's making a massive difference in those who actually allow it. Okay, continuing on the theme of relationships, and so much of this, I think everybody has noticed, is relational. Losing trusted friendships. Yeah, I come into a company and somebody says to me, Our CEO is off balance. Something's wrong. Would you check it out? One of the first things I do is look for the recent history of his or her friendships. Hmm. 
Are they growing closer to their friends? Are they spending time? Have they not talked to a friend in a long time? Did they say recently at a board meeting, I, I don't have anybody close to me? Is that, was that what's going on? Friendships always reflect the state of the soul and the state of the individual. And when, you, when it comes to crashes, we're always talking about the soul. We're not just talking about systems and you know, corporate systems. So what are the state of the friend? Who's close? I'll go find the person that the wife will say or the husband will say is the best friend and say, you guys hanging? You talking? Are you able to speak to him? Has it gotten distant? Has it gotten colder? Has it gotten closer? And almost all Always, I can find the dysfunction in and amongst the friendships first. That's what identifies what's going on first. Uh, the best friend will say, you know, along about March of last year, man, he pulled away. And mm-hmm. we had an angry conversation. We haven't spoken since. I saw him at a restaurant. It was embarrassing. The other, other friendships, the same thing. And before long, I've isolated the time, what's gone on, what the feel is. And I can go to that person and say, what happened on March 3rd at 2.30 in the afternoon last yeah, year? You yeah. know, because yeah. it's so clearly reflected in the friendship. It's a tactic that we consultants use, but at the same time, it's only possible to use it because it's a real reflection of the human soul. My wife, after we got married, she didn't really notice till after we got married, but she, it wasn't an accusation, but she did say to me at one point, Don, you tend to have transactional relationships. And it was a very kind thing for her to say. Part of the reason I think I'm okay at business is because I just have a nose for profit. Yeah. I know what's profitable to yeah. do. I know what's profitable to talk about. Yeah. I know what's profitable. That in friendships can be really cold. Yes. You know, do you want to get coffee? Well, yeah, what's our agenda for the coffee? Exactly. What are you trying to build? What am I trying to build? What are we going to get out of it? What's the return on the investment? I literally think like that. Yeah, yeah. And talk me out of it. Well, <laughs> well it's, it's perfectly fine for you to think like that, and it's probably contributed a lot to your success. But do you ever blow off? Do you ever go have fun? I think we're, the next one's probably going to help yeah. us. Number six uh, is n- forgetting fun. Exactly. Most people are living in overly scripted lives. We're living in overly cubicled, overly scheduled lives. Fun is where you find yourself again. Fun is where you find your inner parts. Fun is where you blow off. So, you know, you put five guys in a break room at a company, what are they going to do? They're going to fold up a piece of paper, white paper into a triangle and turn it into the Super Bowl, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just how it's going to work. So whenever I am uh, talking to someone who has crashed or I'm anticipating a crash and warning people almost all the time, hobbies have gone away, trips have gone away, the rowdy two week hunting trip has gone away, whatever, the whitewater rafting, the racquetball game, it's gone away. Uh, It's been lost. And when that person starts losing fun, when they start losing plans of distraction, they become overly tight. They become overly focused. They've ceased to have the blow off time. They've ceased to have the opportunity to dissipate static electricity. And it also reflects in their relationships. Because if you and I are really friends, we're going to have silly time. We're going to have goofy time. We're going to do a stogie. We're going to go hunt. We're going to go swim. We're going to do something that's a planned distraction. Part of it, especially for males, I have to say, is about dissipating that energy that can become destructive otherwise. Let me just make a quick point. Most of the affairs that male leaders have are in part motivated by a desire for adventure. Wow, it's, it's, that makes sense. It's the James for Bo- risk. And- it's the James Bondish scheduling yeah. of the of the rendezvous in the hotel room and the keeping of the secrets and the second phone and the all that kind of thing. Decoder ring, and it's because they're bored. It's wow. because they're bored, and boredom is a huge factor in these crashes. Is there an element to having fun, going on vacation, doing something crazy, turning off the phone, leaving? The- I just remember, you know, the longest vacation I took was right before I got married a few years ago, and it was forced vacation. I mean, it was six weeks of living in a camping trailer behind my wife's parents' house, you know, these kinds of things. Just couldn't get any work done and came back, and I felt like it was 18 months of solid (laughs) energy coming off of that time. And now I see vacations as profitable where I used to say, 
this is something I have to endure for my wife. You've, you've got to I have do to it. endure this vacation for my wife. Yeah, it's where the creative energy, it's where the imagination, it's where the fun and the frolic comes from. It's where a kind of rest for a certain part of your soul happens. Yeah. I, I can go on for hours and we don't have the time, but it's got to happen. In fact, companies that don't require... Uh, their employees to take all of their vacation time and turn off their phones and not engage their emails. I mean, they need to threaten people. You send an email about business, we will beat you with a stick. Now, I mean that humorously, obviously. <laughs> but my point is, if they don't do that, they're not getting the full impact of that employee when that employee returns. We'll be back with the rest of my interview with Stephen Mansfield in just a moment. One of the favorite segments on the Building a Story Brand podcast is when we bring Kula Callahan, one of our coaches, to come in and talk about the problems that clients face when they're creating marketing collateral. You've reviewed hundreds of websites, spent hundreds of hours on the phone talking to people, helping them clarify their message. Kula, what is the biggest mistake that clients make when they're trying to create marketing collateral? What I see most often is that brands really do talk way too much about themselves. So one of the biggest paradigm shifts we teach at StoryBrand is that your customer is the hero of your story and your brand is the guide. So what happens when brands talk mostly about themselves and toot their own horns on their websites is that you're subconsciously competing with the hero. And I want to explain this because there's a little bit of psychological stuff here. Most people believe in a scarcity of resources. So they're a hero out there trying to accomplish something, trying to overcome a challenge, trying to get this payday at the end of, you know, a climactic scene, if you will, at the end of their life. And when you present yourself as a hero, when you come out and say, my grandfather started the company, or we won all these awards, or we're actually really great, or you know these kinds of things, they sense that you're a hero too. And you're both competing for the same resources. And this is all happens on the subconscious level, but they say, well, that's great that you're a hero. I'm a hero. Would you please step aside? I'm looking for somebody to help me win the day in my story. So what's great about this is a lot of business leaders, they don't want to talk a lot about themselves. It's not comfortable. They want to talk about their customers. And we're saying your intuition is correct. You do not have to tell us your grandfather started the company. You do not have to tell us how old the company is. You do not have to tell us that much about the awards that you want. Now, you do have to establish some kind of authority and competency within your realm of expertise. But what you really want to talk about is your customer. What do they want? What's their struggle? What are they trying to accomplish? What does a resolution of their conflict look like? And so you, Kula, when you go to a company's website, you're looking for them to clearly spell out something that will catch the customer's eye, really resonate with them and say, these people understand my story. Can you give us an example of a before and after where somebody's talking about themselves and they said something else? I worked with a financial advisor a few months back and their website when they came to us as a coaching client above the fold just said experienced independent client centered. What does that mean? Exactly. Yeah. Nobody knows. But experienced independent client centered it's these vague, we call them slippery bowling balls. Right. It's like throwing a bowling ball at somebody that's been coated in Vaseline. They're just not going to be able to hold it very long. It's heavy and it's slippery. That's right. And also, it does not do a great job of inviting your customer into the story that you're trying to tell with their life. After learning the story brand framework and applying what they learned to their marketing collateral, they redid their website. And now, when you go to the site, it's DeerfieldFA.com. It says, financial advice allowing you to focus on the moments, not the money. And it sounds a little bit long, but when you actually look at the website, the images behind it give you this sense of, wow, these people help me resolve some conflict. I'm always thinking about money, but now I can think about moments. It's, it's inviting the customer into a journey that you can help them with. 
Exactly. Yeah, I, I helped a client recently. Uh, they're a leadership expert, and their tagline was, inhale knowledge, exhale excellence. I don't know what that means. Inhale knowledge, exhale Who excellence. Who does know what that means? Here's the thing, and I think you found this. People try to get cute. That's right. Don't get cute, get clear. Yes. And so we changed it to become the leader everybody loves. Some people can get cute, but <laughs> the money comes when you're clear. That's exactly it. So inhale knowledge, exhale excellence, or become the leader everybody loves. Well, every leader wants to be the leader that people love, right? So that's something that I want, and I've clearly identified it. It is a bit of an art, but there's some science to it. If you want to go through the framework that helps you get really clear in your message, and this translates into dollars, it translates into business growth. If you want to get clear about your message, come spend two days with us, get away for two days, clarify your message so customers engage, sign up for a workshop at storybrand.com. Once again, that's storybrand.com. All right, back to our interview. Seven, perpetuating an artificial image. Now, as a very important person myself, I don't identify with this, but tell me what you mean. Okay, let's say your branding, you've allowed your branding to become, you can fix any company in the world in 48 hours. Now, I'm being silly to make a point. Right. The pressure on you is amazing. To live up to that To live up to that, that false projected. branding. Television preachers, CEOs, generals, politicians, uh, educators. I can tell you story after story where, you know, we've all been introduced in ways where somebody, you just go, oh my God. You know, I was introduced two weeks ago as the greatest living American author, which is absolutely <laughs> stupid. I mean, it's just stupid. Yeah. Um, if I accept that and then put that in my resume and then get a job based on it, can you imagine the pressure I'm living under every single day? So false branding. Branding and then living under the pressure of that branding, especially in, in, in a society, I need to say, where branding's everything. I mean, you know more about this than yeah, I and, do. And, and these days, everybody self-brands and self-projects yeah. an image. It's crazy. And and by the way, you know, some of this that we're dealing with with fake news and truthiness and uh, high, you yeah. know, true hyperbole, you know, the bottom line is you're very good at what you do. Get your branding as close to it as possible, and you'll exceed expectations and be a success. If you allow it to become inflated, you live under daily pressure of a lie. You know, a lot of these crashes are about people blowing up a world they don't want to live in anymore. Before we turned on the recorder, you and I were talking, and I told you last night I watched this documentary about Evil Knievel. Yes. Betsy had a girl's night, so I'm like, hey, I got the TV. <laughs> a documentary about Evil Knievel, who was our hero growing up, sure. he and Steve McQueen and all these guys. And Knievel, toward the end of his life, I mean, at this point, he's drinking an enormous amount. He's on all sorts of pain meds. He's cheated on his wife a thousand times. He's going to jump over the Snake River Canyon, a one-mile jump in a rocket ship yeah. <laughs> that some yeah. guys made. They tested one of them. It didn't work. Actually, they intentionally underpowered it so it would die, or so it would crash, to make it look like he might crash. Sure. But then he got word the morning of the jump, he's got 20,000 people out there to watch him. He got word that there's a 15-mile-per-hour headwind. He will not make it across the canyon. Yeah. And he does an interview, and he says, well, the wind is bad but we're going to go ahead and do this anyway. I've got to do it. And for the first time in the documentary, you saw him, and he was deathly afraid. But he's getting in the thing, and he's going to commit suicide. He's going to kill himself because that's the image that he had projected. Now, luckily, the parachute kind of worked, and he went into the river. He didn't make it across, and he lived through it. But I asked that roundabout question to say this. If you are in a high-powered position, let's just say maybe what some of us are thinking, that is Donald Trump's personality. Yeah. But when you put the country into a rocket ship, what is the ramifications of that personality when you just say, 
this is an artificial image, but I got to keep it up, and I'm going to take everything down with me, but yeah. I will not look weak. Am I on to something? I don't mean to no, no, to throw the are. president under the bus because yeah. I think he's doing some great things, but I see that part of the personality. I just go, that's a little spooky to me. Am I off on that? No, no, I think you're right. We tend to think of suicide as, a, as an ultimate final act, but many times people are engaged in slow suicide. Uh, Donald Trump seems to me like the kind of man who is often trying to blow things up. He'll talk about preserving them. He'll talk about strengthening them or making them better, but in some cases, he doesn't mind if it just blows up. And I think a lot of CEOs and leaders and what have you get themselves in situations of intense pressure. They want out, go ahead and let's do this thing. And I can't tell you how many of them have said to me after the huge crash, it just couldn't continue. I had to do something to set the match to this sucker. And, and if, instead of confessing, you just destroy well, them. Well, if they knew how to confess, they wouldn't be in the situation. I'm right. not trying to be sarcastic. I'm no, saying no, that they didn't have the tools. They yeah. didn't have the tools. You say, it's interesting. You, your, your mind immediately goes, well, why didn't they confess and pull some brothers around and get it over with? Well, no, they didn't know how to do that. If they'd known how to do it, they wouldn't have had to set their world on fire. So they yeah. destroyed their kids, destroyed their company, destroyed their marriage. You know, their obituary is going to say he had the big affair and blew up, you know, Jones Company because they couldn't figure any other way out. And that's why I have this list. That's why I've written this booklet, because people need to see that there is another way out. They just don't have the, the equipment that you have, the thinking that you have as to how to get out of it. So they blow it up. Well, if you haven't identified with anything that Stephen has said so far, you're about to identify with something because <laughs> this one <laughs> this one is something we all do. Uh, number eight, they serve the schedule. Yeah, yeah. I was embedded some years ago with the uh, soldiers in Iraq, and I was talking to some of the psychologists about what the post-traumatic stress syndrome is and so on. And they said, look, soldiers don't mind doing their duty. What they have a hard time with is having to do all the duties, make all the sacrifices, go through all the schedule, and not knowing why. Or mm. the second thing is not mm. believing that it's good and virtuous, that it's valuable, that it's right. They have to be connected to that deeper sense of meaning. Yes. Otherwise, it's just be here at 5.30, be here at 6, do this, do that, do the other thing. We all feel that. We all look down at our iPhones and go, oh my God, I've got 17 meetings today. What are any of them about? How did this get scheduled? When we lose the purpose for the schedule, but we're just going through the schedule, that's when numbness sets in. That's when resentment sets in. Uh, that's when a deadness of soul sets in. And always that leads to these crashes. Again, men tend to have affairs as much for the adventure as for the sex. It's not, in fact, in some cases, there are people famous for having affairs who never actually had intercourse. They were just in the room alone with the person, but it was the excitement of getting there that was the issue. What are they doing? They're blowing up this boring, hyper-scheduled, what does any of it mean kind of life they're living, and they're doing it because it's become more deadening to their soul in their mind than the damage that's going to come from their what act. What does it look like when we're serving the schedule? I mean, is it like waking up and saying, I have no freedom today? There's no strategic purpose. Your heart, your mind is not bought into that strategic purpose. I imagine that you, given who you are, you can look at everything you're doing today and go, good, I've got this interview. This I got, is advancing got goals that, that are meeting, good for the world. Or at least are... I'm having lunch with somebody I enjoy. You know, But what you're not is like a lot of corporate CEOs scheduled every 15, 20 minutes, and you can't figure out what the heck any of it means. Some hmm. executive secretary, some EA booked all this at the request of the board or the finance department or whatever, and you got to have these meetings, and it's going to be a day of numbness. You already know it, and you can't. Can't wait for the gin and tonic at five thirteen. Well, and that's when things start to go wrong. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of us can identify with the idea that we've just fallen into this pattern. That really is what post-traumatic stress is. It's a moral issue. It's a purpose issue in the military, and the thing translates into corporate world. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing good? Is there an exercise we can do? Can we sit and say, 
you know, not just what are my goals, but what is my story? What's my subplot in a greater story? How's everything connected to that? And remind ourselves or at least do some adjustment and filter some of our schedule so that it's back connected to a deeper sense of meaning? Yeah, I've actually mentioned you in some of the seminars that I do about this because keeping connection to the story there's one coming up in a minute that's even more specifically about this. But what is the story? Did you just plug into a machine? Are you just a cog? Or are you here actually for some noble purpose, something that, that connects to your heart, your soul, your gifts, your life purpose? Um, recover that. Otherwise, you're just going cog-like through your day, and it's going to destroy you. None of us can be scheduled as tightly as most leaders are all day, every day, without purpose. They at least have to believe in America or, I mean, just crassly believe in the paycheck. But something's got to lift them to a higher purpose. And then the other thing, too, is if you're connected to your story uh, and you've got any kind of courage, you look at your schedule on your iPhone and you go, no, three-quarters of this stuff needs to go away. It needs to be right. handed off to somebody right. else. This doesn't have me in the, in the sweet spot of what I do best. Great. All right, number nine, building a third world. This one to me, as soon as I read it, I thought this makes complete sense, but I would have never thought of it. The imagery comes, and I'm not playing politics here, the imagery comes from the Clinton years. When President Clinton was in the Oval Office, he would have, of course, the tryst with Monica Lewinsky. He did that in the private office, uh, which was separate from the residence in the White House, if you know how the White House is laid out. So essentially, he left the Oval Office, the place of pressure and work, and uh, left his home, his residence in the White House, his place of marital pressure and disharmony, and he went to a third world, a third room, a third place to have his affair. This is what men in particular will do. Women do it as well. Uh, we create the third world. It's the bar. It's it's the apartment, it's the plane, it's the hunting shack, it's the third place we go so we can avoid the discomfort and the unhappiness of home and work. Pressure at work, disharmony at home, we're going to build a third world. Men, is is men there something about the that. third world that we feel this is the place we can actually be ourselves? Yeah. And once we get to a certain level of success, we can afford to create that. When we're young, it might be the basketball court or who knows what, you know, the back porch. But, but when you get older, we get to a level of success. We can build that cabin in the woods. We can have the apartment in Paris. We can have the jet that flies around and I've got, you know, three babes on it. Uh, we can do that kind of thing. So we can create that third world. And, the, and I cannot tell you how many crashes occur because some powerful CEO created the third world. And often the company itself is providing that third, third world. world. Yeah, there's five apartments and major capitals around the world, and he can have all of them that he wants and the plane on the way and take anybody he wants without any records being kept. I have a number of friends who I knew them when they weren't successful. They became extremely successful. That changes you. Yes. And their spouses stayed the same. Yes. They changed. Their spouses stayed the same. And when they went home, they felt like this spouse didn't really understand who they actually were. They had changed. Now, I don't know who they really are or who they aren't. My advice for them is you got to take your spouse with you. Your spouse has to change with you. Your spouse has to be integrated into this evolution. Otherwise, there's going to become this yawning chasm between the two of you. Is the third place, does it get created because this person has changed and they're surrounded? We've all gone back home and somebody said to me, oh, there's Don. You know, you know, Don's always late. And I actually snapped at him and said, actually, that was a long time ago. I'm on time. Yeah. I'm somebody who's on time. And it <laughs> pissed me off. And yeah, I'm sure. like, what am I responding to here? They're like, I'm, I'm punctual. Yeah. I'm punctual Don. That's my new nickname. Yeah. But there's, you know what I mean? There's this sense of like, this person isn't changing with you. That creates a chasm. It makes sense to me why so many celebrities 
you know, get divorced from the person, their high school sweetheart, and marry some other celebrity. There's got to be another way around that. How do you there navigate is. that there kind is. of situation? Yeah, there is. First of all, you you have to stay in a position where you value the input of that spouse. Yeah. What happens is- And invite it. Yes. Your world becomes cool and sexy, and the spouse becomes kind of frumpy and bathrobe-wearing and uninteresting when you go home and you go, you just don't understand my There's sex- There's a word for that. It's called real. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> it's right. It's real that's right. life. That's yeah. right. Uh, actually, one of the guys who taught me a great deal about this was Tom DeLay, the former House Majority oh, Leader. Yeah. Tom DeLay would actually involve his wife in all hiring. If you didn't get along with Christina, you didn't, you weren't hired. Uh, he always had a separate phone just for her, a separate phone line, and for his daughter. There were a lot of things that he instituted so that he always had the input of his home life, and whatever his problems and whatever you know, political issues he had later, he never had any marital or, or sexual issues. He has yeah. a strong marriage, a great relationship with his daughter, and he's never done anything sexually immoral as far as anybody even alleges. And the reason was he kept his wife central to his life and trusted her value. And she, when she would say, well, they're all highfalutin, you don't want to get involved in that, you know, in, in kind of Texas language, he would listen. All right, number 10, and this is the most mysterious and poetic of them all appropriately, losing the poetry. What does it mean to lose the poetry? There's a reason that you got into what you're doing, Don. There's a reason you're here. There's a reason we're sitting here from your perspective. There's some poetry. There was something you believed in, something that captured your heart, something yeah. you wanted to be about. Story, brand, literature, whatever it was, people, helping people achieve, whatever lit you up. If you lose that, if you outstrip that, if you get distant from it, then you will begin to lapse into all the other nine things that we have talked about. Mm. The art is to keep the poetry. There's a, there's a movie that I, that I really love. I think it's called Broadcast News. Um, and in it, a character gets up every morning. She's a news producer, and she tries to see if she can cry based on what she's seen the previous day in news. Mm. The day she gets up in the morning and can't cry anymore, she resigns. The reason wow. is she knows she's lost the poetry. Mm. And so... That's the way it is with all of us. If you're a pastor, you got into it for a certain reason. If you're a CEO, you got into it because you believed in something, you cared about something. It may have been five minutes in that economics class in college, but at least there was a moment of poetic inspiration that carried you to where you are now. You wanted to make a difference. And by the way, that can happen for tech jobs. You know, the technician can say, I want to extend people's voice, or I want to make, you know, even the common guy have technology at his disposal that he can make a difference in the world. Whatever it is, there was something that got you. Hang on to that. Keep it central. Many times when I'm sitting there doing the postmortem with high-ranking people, they say, I I've forgotten why I even got into this. And during the process of us spending time together, they reclaim it and burst into tears because they've mm. lost it. Yeah. We all had moments in college. We all had books. We all had professors. We all had mentors. We all had moments that turned us. They put the poetry in our soul that got us where we are now, at least in the, in the inception. Lose that. Lose the heart. Once the heart leaves, everything else destructive is possible. Stephen, what can life look like? We, we started out with the scary story the negative. of what can life can look like if you ignore these ideas. What can life look like if you don't? Because I'm convinced that for every one leader who crashes, there are three or four who thrive. They just don't make the news, yeah. right? Yeah. But we all know people who just thrive yeah. in life, in very intense, high-pressure leadership situations. We don't have to crash. No, absolutely We don't not. have to cheat on our spouses. We don't have to do things that are illegal. We don't have to have a third world. We can be integrated and healthy. What can life look like? Keep it simple. Keep it relational. Keep it fun. Yeah. Those are some of the main things. 
Keep the poetry. That means you've got people around you. That means you're having big dinners and people are yelling, screaming, throw things. It's my, you know, my Greek wedding. It's, it's having a community, having a band of brothers, a band of sisters who can talk to you and shoot straight. Um, but keep it simple. That's the main thing. What's what's simple? Simple as you stay with the marriage you had. Simple as you spend time with your kids. Simple as you got a got a group of guys hunting and go, you're an idiot, man. You look like a fool on CNN the other night, you know. Mm, yeah. And and they can speak straight to you. Uh, simple is that you're constantly improving. You never think you you've arrived. Simple is you stay connected to the response systems you've got nearby. Uh, simple is you believe in what your people are doing. You believe in them and you inspire them. What I've just said in those last two minutes it pretty much captures the majority of the reason people fail and the majority of the reason people are successful. I'm convinced that the the number one way we consume stories is not through books, it's not through movies, it's not through television, it's through each other. Yes. And the correct. stories that we live as we walk next to each other set the moral compass in our lives. And this stuff is not just important so that you don't have a miserable life experience. It's important because people are watching your story and they're learning from it. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've been talking to somebody who's a success. There came a moment where they were in trouble and they were walking with their grandchild. Little grandson looks up and says, Granddad, why do you guys do so and so? How'd you get into this line of work? Whatever, some kind of simple little question. Right. And it just causes granddad to think about his story and the story, reclaiming the story becomes a realignment device. And that that changes everything, keeps him from the disaster some other friends might have gotten into. Just because some little cute voice he loved said, how'd you get in here? And when he reclaimed the story, he reclaimed himself. Mm. And so I, I couldn't agree with you more. We absorb stories that way. And also, uh, we also are forced, just like if you and I are just sitting having lunch, you'll say, well, tell me about how you got into what you're doing or tell me why you wrote your first book. And just sometimes by reclaiming that story of myself, I realign in some way that by the time I go home, I'm changed and better. And that, I think that's essential. Stephen, thank you so much for taking time. Man, it's great to be with you. If any of those signs just kind of touched a nerve with you and you thought for a second, maybe I need to slow down and reevaluate some things, we have created a sheet that is a short summary of the 10 signs of leadership crash. And you can get that at buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. It's just a summary of the 10 different signs, some things you need to be looking out for, some things you need to be talking to friends about. But go to buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet and download the 10 signs of a leadership crash. Now. Yeah, JJ, and you know, I would download that worksheet and actually read it with some of your staff, yeah. read it with your small group, yep. read it with your spouse. Give it to some of your close friends and have them read it and say, hey, do you see any yeah. of this in <laughs> do me? Do you see it in me? Yeah. Not only that, but another way to use it, and this is bold, but to be able to use it to read that or listen to this interview and call somebody and say, man, I'm just listening to this podcast, and I've noticed you've created a third world, and I'd love to talk to you about it. Can we get together and get a beer or something like that? Or I don't know, how do you go to somebody and say you're projecting a false <laughs> image? But hey, I've followed you on Instagram for a long time, and that ain't true, image, man. Yeah. That ain't true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whatever, but it's also, it's a preempt strike. Yeah. It's medicine. It's yeah. a way to sort of get this in there so that the cancer doesn't take over. I am so grateful for Stephen Mansfield. I mean, yeah. what a what a gift of wisdom he, he has and he's brought to us. And JJ, as always, I'm grateful for you Likewise. and the kind of culture that we've created. And uh, I'm just so thankful for these friendships. Not that we have perfect, we're completely no, yeah. capable <laughs> yeah. of crashing and burning, <laughs> exactly. but we're good for now. Yes. <laughs> All right, on the next episode of the Building a Story Brand podcast, I interview Ashley Vance. Ashley has written a book about Elon Musk, and so we're going to talk all about Elon. Just an insane, insane guy, all that he's getting done. The book spotlights the technology and vision of Elon, the renowned entrepreneur and innovator behind SpaceX, Tesla, Solar City. He's also building a Hyperloop, trying to put people on Mars. 
an overachiever, I would say. Listen to a little clip of that upcoming interview with Ashley. It depends how closely you follow Elon, right? But but here's the here's the deal. His his life's mission. He's got all these companies, but his one singular mission in life is to create a colony on Mars, and not just with like five or six people. He wants thousands of people living on Mars, and it comes from this this very software engineer place where he wants a backup plan for the human species in case something goes wrong. And I think people hear him talk about this and some people think that's great. Some people think it's crazy. No matter what you think, you have to understand that this is his driving life goal and it is not a joke. All right, looking forward to that. Make sure to subscribe to the Building a Story Brand podcast so you get all the episodes. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell, and you can listen to Andrew's music on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. Music.